All right, we're in Revelation chapter 2. Good to see everybody tonight, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8. And tonight I'm going to read verses 8 to 11, and then we'll go ahead and pray. Sound good? The Bible says in verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, uh, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Oh God, thank you so much for this inspired letter to this suffering and persecuted church. And uh, Father, thank you for your faithfulness to your people. God, of course, first and foremost, we thank you that you are faithful to us. God, in the midst of our struggles and trials and uh, maybe even sometimes in this culture that we live in, some sort of persecution. Father, thank you that we have nothing to fear because you are with us. And we thank you as well, God, that for all of our brothers and sisters that are suffering throughout the world, God, you are with them too. And we ask just in a very special way tonight as uh, our minds are drawn to them and the situations that they're dealing with and uh, the great suffering that they endure for the gospel. Lord, would you just meet the needs of their hearts? God, would you supply the strength that they need to endure the opposition in a way that honors you? God, would you cause their sacrifice of time and uh, treasure and sometimes even their lives. God, we pray that it would be the seed of the church, their sacrifice, and in those areas where the adversary is seeking to stomp out and destroy the testimony of your people, that, Father, in fact, it would just grow. And we're grateful tonight to be able to see in places like China and Iran and in Egypt, uh, Father, in so many different countries, the expansion of your kingdom under when your people are under great duress. Lord, we know that no weapon of the adversary can stop your purposes. And so tonight I pray that we would learn from this church, that we would be encouraged in our faith, and that you would hear our prayers tonight as we pray for suffering brothers and sisters around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, clearly uh, you know because... I've already said it, Smyrna is known as the persecuted church, and uh, this particular church, uh, when we started the seven letters, I'd mentioned to you that there were two churches that Jesus did not uh, have any correction for, any admonition for, and Smyrna is one of them, Philadelphia is the other. So the normal pattern that we follow in these letters uh, it is, in fact, the normal pattern, except what's missing typically here is some sort of correction. Uh, this was a church that was suffering greatly. Uh, in fact, you know, obviously Christ acknowledges that suffering, uh, although there's not really great detail given to us about the condition of the culture that they were living in. We are going to talk about things that were prevalent uh, in Smyrna at the time, that would have been a great difficulty for Christians. You know, I think that when we talk about persecution, sometimes for us in the Western world, uh, and I'm not saying that we are persecuted for our faith, there is opposition oftentimes, but not to the level of what many brothers and sisters are suffering around the world. And we wanted to share with you, because sometimes I do think there is a disconnect, right? We, we know, because we hear it from time to time on the news, or maybe it's mentioned in a message um, concerning some sort of suffering that Christians are enduring around the world, maybe even right now a little more, the information is a little bit, bit more available to us because of what's happening in Afghanistan. But I wanted to share 
uh, what I think are some eye-opening statistics concerning uh, the persecution of the church in our modern-day era. Uh, this, I found this to be interesting. Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. So by the time we wrap up our Sunday services and enjoy um, our gold standard from Beyond Coffee and hang out with each other in the lobby, the reality is 13 uh, brothers and sisters will have given their life for their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. They paid the ultimate price in being unwilling uh, to deny their faith in him. Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked, and every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. Um, this has been true for the last decade, that Christianity is the most persecuted religion of all of the, the world religions, and that persecution is increasing um, on a pretty steady level. Now, I think that we know as we're, especially in the book of Revelation, that uh, things for the church are just going to get worse. Uh, ultimately, as there's, a, as there's a single global religious uh, religion that will be worshipped, that the Antichrist will be establishing a one-world government, an economic system, um, that at some point in the tribulation period, you know, my view, of course, is that the church will be raptured, but there's still, at this time, but there still will be believers that will be living during the era of the mark of the beast. We know that there's just going to be great opposition to those who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And I think that we see the signs of that all around us. I think sometimes there's a disconnect for us because if we can be honest with each other, we live in a in a world of great abundance and ease. I know recently, you know, the on-demand world that we've been living in has not been so on-demand. There's been some inconveniences. You go to the store and you go to the deli section and, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's just not there. And of course, you know, we're, we're irate. We go over to the toilet paper section and, and there's only certain brands of toilet paper to choose from. And then we go over and, you know, sometimes... Look, I'm not saying that these are real issues, but sometimes, you know, we just have to remind ourselves they're first world issues that we have. And we're just so accustomed to having everything at our fingertips, which is just, you know, of course, is um, it makes life really easy. But at the same time, I also think that it creates a disconnect between ourselves and the brothers and sisters in the world who are really suffering for their faith. And I'm not saying today that you know, when we get opposition that it doesn't matter or that it doesn't hurt or that it's not real, um, you know, and I'm not always just saying, hey, well, yeah, somebody, somebody got mad at you because you're a Christian, but, you know, you just need to suck it up. Yeah, I mean, that is true. And at the same time, you know, that opposition, we feel it, you know, and it does hurt. But when we put it in uh, light of the suffering that Christians are experiencing around the world, sometimes it's important for us to realize that in this culture, at least, I don't think that we have it really hard. So what do you do? Are you guys with me on that? Okay. If you disagree with that, you can email Pastor Tony at tonymonto at cclasvegas.org. Um, verse 8, and the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. So the standard pattern that we're following initially, of course, beginning with identification. Um, we've discussed already what... The, or who the angel of these churches may be, but this particular church was in Smyrna. Smyrna was an absolutely amazing ancient city. It is an amazing city today. We had the opportunity to be in Smyrna, I think, seven or eight years ago, and um, if you look at a map today, maybe you Google Smyrna, you're not going to find Smyrna today. What you will find is Izmir, so modern-day Izmir is ancient Smyrna. It's an absolutely gorgeous city um, with beautiful beaches. It has a, a wonderful harbor and actually a, a gulf, uh, a body of water that was very convenient for ships to pull in and pull out of to do commerce. Uh, therefore, it was a very wealthy city. The historian, ancient historian Strabo said of Smyrna that it was the most beautiful city in the world. And he described it like this. He said, it's situated overlooking a beautiful harbor with absolutely wonderful beaches. And he wrote that in 1000 BC. Um, it is interesting that 
Smyrna was ultimately destroyed in 600 BC, and the city literally was laid waste. It was, it was raised, R-A-Z-E-D, it was raised to the ground. And then about 300 years later, uh, Lysimachus, who was really the king over that whole area, rebuilt Smyrna. So it was a city that had been dead but had come back to life again. And when he rebuilt it, uh, he actually created a master plan for the city, and it's known uh, in ancient history as really the first planned city of the ancient world. Um, at that point in time, you know, as the Roman uh, Empire began to develop and to grow, there was a very special relationship that Smyrna had with Rome. Of course, Smyrna is in modern-day Turkey, ancient Asia Minor. And so um, it not being in Italy, of course, there needed to be some security uh, between the people of Smyrna and the Roman Empire. And so what they did to kind of curry the favor of the emperor was they basically established emperor worship in Smyrna. And this is important because, you know, if you're a Christian living in this era and you know that the Roman Empire had, had, had basically uh, control of the whole known world at that point in time. If you were a Christian during that time, it was very difficult because these temples were built to the Roman emperor. And every year, every citizen had to go into the temple and offer a pinch of incense on the altar and make the declaration. This was the declaration that they were forced to make, Caesar is Lord. Now, while that may work if you're polytheistic and pagan, it doesn't work if you're a Christian because there's only one king of kings and lord of lords, and his name is Jesus. So it put these believers in a very, very difficult position because they knew that they couldn't do that. You know, they couldn't acknowledge Caesar as lord. The ensuing persecution, well, what ensued from that was persecution. It was for sure uh, financial persecution, economic persecution, and oftentimes physical persecution. So it was a, a difficult environment to be living in. The word Smyrna literally means bitter, but the root word is where we get our English word myrrh from. And so some people say that Smyrna actually does mean myrrh. And of course, if you've studied the scripture, you're familiar with all the different uses of myrrh. Um, it had medicinal purposes. It was used in embalming bodies uh, for burial. And then, of course, it was used as a fragrance in, um, in the temple, in the tabernacle for worship, and then just as a fragrance. The process for... Uh, creating that fragrance or the, the incense, you know, is interesting and very illustrative, I think. Uh, what people who harvested myrrh would do is they would take, they, they would grow these shrubs or trees. The myrrh tree is about 10 to 12 feet high. It's really technically not called a tree. It's called a shrub. But what they would do is they would take a sharp object and they would score the trunk of the shrub and the fluid within the trunk would uh, it would leach out of the trunk. It would dry, it would harden, it would crystallize, and then they would come along and they would harvest uh, those hardened balls of myrrh. And then ultimately what they would do is they would beat them into a fine powder and light them on fire, for instance, for fragrance, and that's what would ultimately create the smell. So the process is interesting, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, in a sense, Suffering and affliction in the process, sharp object scoring the trunk of the tree, the fluid coming out, it being harvested, and then beaten and ground down into a fine powder and lit on fire, and that's when the fragrance would be emitted. I say all of that because that really is symbolic of what this church was going through, and it is connected to the words that Jesus is going to use concerning their suffering. Um, as you go through the scripture, you know, Mers mentioned a number of times, it's mentioned when the wise men came to offer their gifts before Jesus. 
Um, it's mentioned when Nicodemus buried Christ, he brought uh, myrrh and aloes, although it wasn't a proper preparation for the body. That's why the women came on that Sunday morning. Um, and then it's mentioned as a fragrance in that love song in the Song of Solomon. Um, he goes on to say these things. Let me just read this again. I read it already, but let me read it one more time. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. So we have the identification of this church. Now we have this revelation. Remember I said to you that Jesus takes a piece of the revelation that was given in chapter one, and he brings it to bear uh, for these particular churches. It's a very strategic and purposed piece concerning himself that the church needed to hear again. Maybe um, it was because the church had forgotten some aspect of his ministry or an aspect of his nature. In this particular situation, it's because this church needed to be encouraged. How did he encourage this church? Well, he revealed, he reminded them of who he is, a revelation of himself. You know, there's nothing more encouraging in our lives than remembering who the Lord Jesus Christ is. I know sometimes it's great to have the circumstances change. I know sometimes it's great to have the answer to the prayer come. But at the end of the day, you know, there's nothing like just reflecting on how awesome and amazing our Savior is. And there's always some element of his attributes that just applies to the particular issue that we're dealing with that consoles our hearts or, in fact, reminds us not to fear. You say, well, what does he say that would encourage this church that's suffering to the extent of possibly giving their lives for him? He says, don't forget I am the first and the last. Don't forget I am the first and the last. Before anything ever was, I was. And before anything comes to, before everything comes to a close or after everything comes to a close, I will be. I've always been before everything was and I always will be after everything is over. Look, he's more than just bookends. He is the eternal God. And I think that his eternality reminds us of his providence and his sovereignty. You know, are you guys with me tonight? Sometimes we just need to be reminded that Jesus has the whole world in, in his hands. I mean, it's a simple song, isn't it? But, you know, let's sing it together tonight. No, I won't. Everybody. <laughs> yeah, that is awesome. He does, and he's got your life. He's got your situations. He, he has your unanswered prayers that are clinging to his heart. He has your future. He's got your present. He has your past. There's not a single thing that Jesus Christ has overlooked in your life. And in the moment of difficulty and affliction and struggle and question and doubt, you know what we need to do is just remind ourselves that he is the eternal one. He was dead and he came to life. Well, how does that, how does the resurrection of Jesus encourage a church who is for some of them about to lay their lives down as martyrs? Well, it's the reminder that no matter what, a person may do to us in this life, they can't take away the promise of the life to come. No matter what people may do to us in this life, our salvation is settled and secure. This life that we live is really just a vapor, and one day we will live in the presence of God forever. And in addition to that, it's not just the promise, it's the process. It's not just the promise, it's the process. Paul said it like this. He said, we must through great tribulation enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus showed the pattern. He showed the pattern to everlasting life included suffering and difficulty. And so what we choose to do is we follow in his footsteps. Paul said, you know, that he counted it all joy to know him and the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection. That, that's, that was the heart of the apostle. He's like, man, I have all these things that I could be boasting about, but all that stuff's just a dung heap. All that stuff is just rubbish. It's nothing because I've exchanged all that. I've exchanged the ambitions. I've exchanged, you know, the, the need to satisfy myself and pursue this great dream and, 
all things oriented around me. I've exchanged that for these three simple things. Number one, to know him. Number two, the fellowship of his sufferings. And number three, the power of his resurrection. And so Christ lays down for us the pattern that leads to everlasting life. And oftentimes it comes with great suffering. I think that might be hard for us because you know that we take great measures to mitigate pain in our life. And I'm not saying that that is not a wise thing to do because, you know, we aren't necessarily always looking to make decisions that just inflict pain upon ourselves, but sometimes that can be a God in our life. You know, we're so interested in making things easy, sometimes we can find ourselves choosing the thing that is, in, in fact, in total conflict with the will of God for us because sometimes God's will is not to take us around the storm or under the storm or remove the storm. Sometimes the will of God is to take us through the storm. And the blessing of going through the storm is that his presence is with us. I think of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, right? I mean, they were confronted with that decision, either to bend their knee and to worship Nebuchadnezzar or to maintain what they knew to be true, that they were to have no other gods before Yahweh. And they said to Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't matter what you do to us, you know, we're not going to do what you say, even if that means that you cast us into that fire. And so, you know, there wasn't some radical earthquake that rescued them from being cast in the fire. No, they were cast into the fire, but there was one with them that was like the Son of God, the words of Nebuchadnezzar. Christ was with them in the midst of the difficulty and you know, when you are going through struggle and trial and you experience the presence of Jesus Christ, there is nothing that you would exchange that for. Amen. Verse nine, I know your works. This is the commendation piece. I know your works. So he says, listen, I, I've, seen, uh, I've seen how you have poured yourself out. Let, there, people interpret this two different ways. Sometimes people put a colon here right after works, and they say tribulation and, and poverty and enduring the blasphemy of the works, or the works means all of the effort they poured out in service of God. I think that when he says works, he's saying, I know all of the effort that you've poured out in the service of God. You know, uh, the author to those believers in the book of Hebrews, those Jews who had converted to Christ, who were drifting away from their faith, this was one thing he used to encourage them. He encourages them with the reality that God has seen everything that they had done for their brothers and sisters in the faith. And I want to remind you of that tonight. He does see every ounce of labor that you have poured out in his name. And you know, the truth is this, uh, sometimes you're not going to get that word of affirmation. Sometimes you're not going to get that at a girl or at a boy. Sometimes, you know, you're not going to have somebody come along and say, man, you know what? That was the most life-changing message I've ever heard in my life. Please don't stop preaching. Sometimes you're not going to hear if you serve in Beyond Coffee Shop, wow, that was a, just a life-changing espresso that you made for me. Keep pulling those shots in Jesus' name. Sometimes when you're serving the kids in the children's ministry and you got, you know, dirty diapers and crushed up goldfish all over the floor and parents who are mad because, you know, they don't think that you handle things the right way or whatever it might be, you know, sometimes serving God doesn't come with the affirmation. Sometimes it doesn't. In fact, honestly, oftentimes it doesn't. Oftentimes people can come off like they don't acknowledge or see what it is that you're doing in the name of Jesus, but there are eyes that see, God's eyes see. God sees as you stand at the door and you greet people who walk in and walk out every single week, and God sees that, and, and that means something to the heart of God. God sees when you've poured out all of the time and the effort to prepare a message for the children and you know you don't necessarily feel like they received one single thing from it, God has, has seen that, and it matters to the heart of God. Never forget that God sees your works. Not only did he know their works, he also knew their tribulation. This word in Greek is thlipsis. It's not an easy word to say, um, but it's a very strong word in the original language for suffering. Um, it can be translated by this phrase, the burden that crushes, the burden that crushes. I find that 
you know, very descriptive of what they're going through. This was, what they were enduring was a burden that crushes. You know those times where you feel and you say to God, God, one more thing. Like one more. I just, I can't handle one more thing. And then what happens? You get one more thing. And then after that, you're like, no, really, really. Like one more thing. I can't. And, then, and then there's another thing, you know, and they, those things pile up. They pile up and you can bring you to a, a place where there's slipsis in your life. There's a burden that crushes and you know what he's saying to this church is, I'm present with you. I see this. I see the tribulation. I see the adversity. I see the difficulty. I know there's the tendency in this moment to think that I've abandoned you and I've walked away and I've let you go because maybe there's not a resolution to the situation or an alleviation for this, from the suffering but I see what you're enduring, and I am present with you in it. It was great suffering that they were enduring. It was not easy to be a Christian in Smyrna. And part of that was because of the economic suffering that they were enduring, which is the third thing that he acknowledges. He says, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich, as a parenthetical. The word poverty, there's two words in the original language that we translate into English poverty, this is the strongest word. Um, it means destitution. It means destitution. It means to have absolutely nothing. I mean, there was not just physical suffering that was coming. There was already economic suffering that these individuals were going through. Important to remember that the guilds during kind of like, you know, the unions, uh, during this ancient time, they were all uh, oriented around the worship of false gods. And so for all of the guilds that were represented in these seven cities, whether it was the clothing guild or the metallurgy guild or what, whatever, you fill in the blank, um, it wasn't as if it was just this secular business. They had particular gods that they worshipped because they believed in the worship of these gods that their businesses would be blessed. Now, if you're a Christian and, you know, you're working in the clothing guild and they're like, hey, you know what? You need to sacrifice to the goddess Artemis because she's the one that's going to uh, make sure that all of the crops come in and, you know, all of the cotton, you know, is harvested and then um, all of the things come together and ultimately we're going to have, you know, this wonderful year. If you're a Christian and you're being compelled to worship a god so that your business might flourish, obviously that's going to be a problem for you. And it was a problem for these believers. They, they essentially said, we're not worshiping your false gods or goddesses. And the consequence of that was many of them lost their businesses, many of them lost their jobs, and they were living in destitution. They were living in poverty. Um, interestingly enough, and we're not going to really uh, dive into this tonight, not too far away was the church of Laodicea, which was a very wealthy church. Laodicea was the center of banking in Asia Minor at the time. It was an unbelievably wealthy church, and it would seem that this church was so spiritually detached from the brothers and sisters in their vicinity that were suffering that there was no help supplied from the church of Laodicea. Um, which is just a reminder for us. You know, when we're living with great abundance, it is important for us to help those who are not as blessed as we are. Jesus gives, you know, a beautiful insight here. Like from the world's perspective, they were poor, but the truth was this, they were rich. Even though they had nothing from the world's perspective, they really had everything. He said this in a parable that he gave. Jesus said, Beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he or she possesses. And I think that's true. Listen, you can lose the favor of man. You can lose the favor of the culture. You can be destitute and from the world's perspective, have no network, you know, no influence, no resources, no financial capacity. And yet at the same time, you can be the richest person on the face of the earth because those things don't make you uh, a man or a woman that is pleasing in the eyes of God. Your trust and faith in Jesus Christ does. He goes on to say, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So um, not only was this church being persecuted by the uh, pagan culture, but they were also being persecuted by those who uh, were of the seed of 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, remember with me, and this is obvious, but just because you have the physical lineage as a Jew does not necessarily mean that you are a Jew. Paul points that out, um, that there's a spiritual element that you know, is absolutely necessary. You can have the pedigree. You can have the, the lineage. You can have the history. You can have the stories in the past, but God's not looking to, he wasn't looking to them to rely on those things as if those things established their relationship with him. He wanted them to walk by faith. And, and so there were a group of Jews that were not God-loving individuals, these particular Jews. They persecuted the church, and they were, in fact, a synagogue of Satan. They weren't following the Lord. It was kind of like what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You're just like your father, the devil. Can you imagine? I mean, how hard would that word be to hear? But in a similar way, they had gotten so far off track, off the rails uh, in their approach to God that Jesus here says that they were a synagogue of Satan. And as such, uh, they persecuted uh, pretty vigorously this church. So we have the introduction, we have the commendation, uh, now we have the motivation. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Uh, so just hold, hold the, the phrase, do not fear in your mind just for a second. Um, Jesus says, hey, listen, as hard as it's been, I mean, this would be a tough word. Like if you're going to get a letter from Jesus, probably a difficult, this would be a difficult thing to hear. You're already in the midst of suffering. It's already flips this for you. You've got the burden that crushes that's bearing down on you. And what does he say? He says, it's not over. It's not over. God bless you. Be warm and filled. Have an awesome day in Jesus' name. It's not over. The suffering, in fact, is going to continue. You know, don't fear any of those things you are about to suffer. What he gives them here is a word of preparation. He gives them a word of preparation. Hey, as hard as it's been, it, in, in fact, is going to get worse. Now, I just want to remind us, I know this is not, when I say this a hundred times, so sorry for saying it again, but this is not really the Bible promise that we all hold on to. It's not, you know, on our screensaver. It's not something we've tattooed on our physical body. You know, when Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. When Peter said, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, you know, of the 365 you know, promises that you have in your little calendar, right? A promise of God every day. Like, why is this not included? I'm just, I'm just curious. Why is there not the reminder that we're promised adversity and difficulty and suffering? I'll tell you why, because the calendar wouldn't sell. That's why. Because the calendar wouldn't sell, because no one's buying that t-shirt. Don't you think we should make a t-shirt? I think, I think we're having a moment of revelation right now. Don't you think we should, we should, I'm not saying we should all go get tattoos together, <laughs> but, but maybe we should, we should make a shirt. Maybe we need to remind each other that difficulty and adversity in this life as a believer is not something that he's promised to eliminate from our life. He's promised that it, in fact, is going to come. And the exhortation is, listen, you don't have to be afraid. You do not have to be afraid. I love what Peter said to the churches that actually were in the area of Galatia, not uh, far removed from where these seven churches were, were. They were going through difficulty, and they're like, what the heck? What the heck is this? This is not what I signed up for. When pastor preached the message and you know, gave the opportunity to respond to the gospel, this is not what I was thinking was actually going to happen. Peter says to people who were thinking that, he said, beloved, do not think it's a strange do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. So listen, in other words, he's like, hey, why are you acting like you're surprised or like you're shocked or like it's just something that you want to escape. No, the re reality is this. You can take joy, not some sick, weird joy, but you can take joy that you've been given the privilege of suffering for the name of Jesus. 
This is an honor that we bear as believers, not a curse. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, to a church that was also enduring suffering, the author to those believers says this, to encourage them, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Listen, when you're in the workplace, or, you know, as Christmas is rolling around, and you're having big family dinner, you know, and you're in that moment where it's like, okay, you know, I'm going to take a step here, and I'm going to mention the name of Jesus. You know, typically, you can talk about God all day long, but when you mention the name of Jesus, like, there's something that happens, right? There's this electricity that, that fills the air. All of a sudden, there's a line that's drawn in the sand. It, it changes things. It changes people's attitudes, and, you know, sometimes when we're in that spot of like, man, do I? Do I or don't I? Do I say it? Do I not say it? Do I make a stand? Do I not make a stand? When you're at work and you have an opportunity to share the message of the gospel with a co-worker, with, you know, a colleague, and you know, as you've been praying and God now is opening a door, there's always going to be that voice that says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you sure you want to risk this? Are you sure you want to open this door? Are you sure you want to walk into this? Because you may lose a lot if, in fact, you take this course. And sometimes within us, there's that hesitancy to take a step because we are afraid of what might happen. And we need to remember the words of Christ to the church at Smyrna, do not be afraid. Be led by God. You know, share the name of Jesus with those around you because God's not placed you in the workplace. And I'm not talking about being a belligerent, stupid, annoying Christian. I'm not talking about that because, you know, you know, there are people like that. I went to Bible college with one. His name was, well, his name was Todd, but we called him Twofold Todd. And Todd, if you're listening right now, thank you for this illustration. <laughs> But we called him Twofold Todd because, you know, whenever he had a question for an instructor, he'd say, you know, I have a twofold question for you. And it's like, oh, okay, here's your question. But Todd worked at, we, we were up in Lake Arrowhead. This is where the Bible college was at. And Todd worked at this ice skating rink, which was, you know, a well-known Olympic ice skating rink. And, you know, he was the most annoying employee at that ice skating rink, like, known to humanity. I mean, it was just like every person that bought, every person that rented a pair of skates, I mean, he would harass and he would, you know, just beat down with the gospel. I mean, I remember one time a group of us went and, you know, people just want to get their ice skates and, and you know... Twofold Todd's like, you know, these skates, they're not going to save you from hell, bro. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, they, they just, they just want to skate, all right? They just, they just want to skate. Every person, like he ended up getting fired because he was just so belligerent in the name of Jesus. And it's like, hey, you're, you know, you can, you can cross a line. You can cross a threshold where you stop being you know, a blessing to the gospel, and you start be being, you start becoming someone who turns people away from the faith. I mean, there's wisdom when we share. Of course, you know, I'm always, we are always as a pastoral team in church encouraging people to fulfill the great commission, but do it like Jesus did, right? Do it like the Lord did, how did Jesus do it with the Samaritan woman? Well, he did it wisely, and he did it differently than he did with Nicodemus. He considered each person and what it was that was going to build a bridge to the gospel, not a wall. And so I'm saying to us, you know, and Peter goes on to say this in this portion of scripture. He's like, hey, make sure your suffering's not because you're being an idiot and making stupid decisions. I mean, that's my paraphrase, but you know, that's really what he, he, he means when he says that. Be wise, take the step of faith, and do not be afraid. As you've prayed and as God opens the door, walk through that door and believe that God is going to take care of you. He's going to handle the situation. So he, number one, he prepares them. Number two, he gives purpose. He says, indeed, 
Uh, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, that you may be tested. So, so I mean, and this is a very fascinating portion of scripture, right? Because he acknowledges his uh, omniscience here, that he knows every detail about these people. This has always been interesting to me. And he knows exactly what it is that the adversary is going to do. He doesn't say that these are just random events that are just transpiring and, you know, that there's really no rhyme or reason to them. He actually does know who, in fact, is, who is the perpetrator behind this persecution. He says the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. The devil is, a, I know exactly what's happening. I just want to let you know, I know exactly what is about to happen in your life, and I know who is going to do it. And this is where some of us would say, well, wait a minute, you know, if he knows that, then why does he allow it? Well, because he has purpose. He has purpose even in our suffering. He has purpose even in our persecution. I mean, to the point where he says exactly what the adversary is going to do and the time that it's going to take for him to do what he's going to do. You're going to be thrown into prison for 10 days. You know, all of that says to me, and, and of course, you know, the purpose here is that um, they, their faith would be tested. Now, this is not like a pass or fail test. This is not like Jesus saying, well, I'm not really sure what's in you, and so I'm going to put you through this because I need to find out where your heart is really at. No, we know that's not the way he handles stuff, right? Like he knows your heart better than you know your heart, and he still loves you even though he knows your heart which I think is pretty amazing. Somebody say amen to that tonight because that's extraordinary. He knows what's in our heart. The testing he's talking about is a refining. He's talking about refining. He's, you know, this is illustrated by how silver was refined and it would go through this process of being heated. And as it was heated, the impurities, when you're refining silver, you would heat it up. The impurities would come to the top. There was a special tool that was used to scrape off the impurities it was then cooled, and then it was heated again, and the impurities would come to the top. And, you know, the, the silversmith would do this consistently with frequency until he or she saw their reflection, their perfect reflection in, on the surface of the silver. And this is exactly what he does. This is exactly how he uses adversity in our life. It's not without purpose. He's molding and shaping us into his image. He is refining the impurities out of our lives. He is teaching us to live according to the new nature and not the old nature. He is teaching us to trust in him even before the answer to prayer comes. He is teaching us to worship him even before the answer to prayer comes. Listen, it's easy for us to worship God after the sea is parted. It is much harder for us to worship God before the sea is parted. But I do think that that's what real worship is. When we worship God, not just for what he has done, but for who he is. God, I know. I know that you are able to part the sea. God, I know that you are able to provide manna from heaven. God, I know that you are able to sustain me for, for 40 years because I know your character. I know who you are. And I trust God that these details will be worked out according to your will for me. And so now, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, in a moment where the answer to prayer hasn't come and my dreams haven't been fulfilled, God, I'm going to choose to give to you what you deserve because you deserve to be worshipped not just for what you've done, but for who you are. There may be... Somebody here tonight who is at that crossroads, that is your life. That's what you've been enduring. And I'm not saying this has been just some acute affliction. There may be some chronic situation that you are dealing with. And I want to encourage you tonight because not only is God worthy of worship, but worship, as you worship him, you will be lifted up out of the pit of despair. Choose to worship him before the answer to prayer even comes. He gives a time frame here, 10 days. What does that mean to me? Well, I don't think we're just talking about foreknowledge. I don't think it's just, you know, in reference to, well, the fact is he, Satan can do whatever he wants. This is what the Bible is not saying. The Bible is, Jesus is not saying, hey, you know what, Satan, Satan can do whatever he wants, and it just happens to be that this time around, he's got you for 10 days. 
That's not what he's saying. He's talking about limits, limits, even the adversary. You know, when the adversary went to God concerning Job, he had to ask. He had to ask because the adversary does not just have free rule and reign over your life. You are a child of God. And nothing comes into your life that is not first filtered through God's loving hands. And that even includes opposition, persecution, and attack from the adversary. There are even boundaries that are set on that. But you know our God is so amazing that he can even use. And I'm not for sure saying that God causes sin. I'm not saying that God ever tempts us because the Bible, of course, says that he doesn't. It is the adversary that does. And then we're drawn away by the wickedness of our own heart. But the amazing thing about God is he can even use that. God can even use that. God can take even the adversary and his desire to steal away the glory of the Father. God can even take all of that and use it ultimately to bring himself glory. And we see him do that time and time again. Um, you know, it, it, I think it would be easy to look at this church and say, wow, you know, Satan stomped this church out, but that's never the way it is when the church is persecuted. It's never the way it is. You know, Tertullian said, the anti-Nicene father, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And this is, as you look at early church history, what you'll recognize is the more the church was persecuted, the faster it actually grew. And if you talk to people who live in persecuted countries, oftentimes this is what they'll say. They'll say, hey, don't do, they'll say, don't pray because sometimes people from the West say, hey, bro, you know what? I hear it's really bad over there. We're praying that God relieves you from the persecution. Oftentimes what I hear back and what I read about these individuals is they say, don't pray for that because God, in fact, is using the opposition to grow the church, to advance the gospel. You know, when the adversary thinks he is winning, he is actually losing. And, you know, sometimes these people say the worst thing that could happen for the church is, is to have abundance and an absence of ad adversity because that's the place where the church gets lazy and the church turns into Laodicea. So be prepared. He says, be refined. The testing is coming. Um, he says, be faithful. So check this out. He says, and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So um, be faithful. In this particular situation for this church, it was be faithful until death. You know, for some of them, they were going to be imprisoned, and for some of them, they would give their lives as martyrs for the gospel. Uh, we look at that, and we think, wow, I don't know if God's ever going to call me to that. I hope someday, if he does, that I'll be faithful. Well, you won't be faithful with that tomorrow if you're not faithful with what he's put in front of you today. You won't be faithful with that tomorrow unless you're faithful with what he's put in front of you today. So I can't answer this for you. I have to answer it for myself. Like, what, what has he put before you? What has he put before you? Like, we can theoretically talk about the church of Smyrna and what it would have been like, right? But we've got to get out of the theoretical world and bring it down into the concrete reality of our own lives, are we faithful with what he has set before us today? Look, I mean, I, I, I look at it like this. What has God placed in your hands? What has God placed in your hands? And are you being faithful with what he has placed in your hands? Your relationship, obviously, with him. The relationships that he has brought into your life. Fulfilling the great commission and living a life that is glorifying to him. Being faithful with the earthly possessions that he has entrusted to our stewardship and using them as a way to bring him eternal glory. So, you know, let's just think about that tonight. What is God placed in your hands and are you being faithful to it? Uh, these people were like, you know, they were like the process of myrrh. They were going to be pierced and they were going to be afflicted and in that piercing and affliction, the question was going to be for them, what was, what was ultimately going to be released? You know, we don't sometimes really know the condition of our own heart until we go through adversity. And in adversity, kind of like when the tree is scored, the myrrh shrub is scored, well, what comes out is this fragrance. What happens when it's beaten? What happens when it's crushed? What happens when it's placed in the fire? There's this beautiful fragrance that arises 
that is pleasing to those who smell it. Well, what happens when you and I go through difficulty? What fragrance comes from our life? Is it, is it accusation against God? I mean, it could be good or bad, but let's just say from the not good side, is it accusation against God? You know, is it that we take our frustration out on the people around us? Are we like a, the proverbial volcano that's just about to go off and that, that added thing pushes us over the edge and instead of the fragrance of praise, instead of the fragrance of trust and faith, instead of the fragrance of love and mercy, what happens is we discover that sitting at the the top layer of our heart are things that are not pleasing to the Lord. Oftentimes, adversity can be the greatest revelation about the condition of where our heart is really at. Uh, and then, of course, he encourages them with the word of victory. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Five different crowns uh, that are spoken of in the New Testament. The word is Stephanos. Uh, it's not the word that we would interpret diadem. That crown is for Christ alone. But um, you can study that later as, uh, you know, you have the opportunity. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And so finally, the reward here is this, that they'll experience and have everlasting life, not because of their works, not because of the affliction that they endured, but because of their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, listen, you don't need to fear anything that any human being could do to you because you are going to live with me forever. This is a great word of hope. Listen, it's a great word of hope. I don't think it's just escapism either. And sometimes, you know, you'll hear people criticize Christians for, you know, being so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good, or, you know, talking about heaven, you know, pie in the sky, by and by, as a way of, you know, alleviating the current difficulties or adversities. And the truth is this, I love to think about heaven. And heaven, if you're going to escape anywhere in your thought life and think about anything that's awesome and encouraging, heaven's a great place to go. I mean, why escape into the things of this world, which will never strengthen you in your faith? Why not think about looking into the eyes that burn like flames of fire for you? Why not think about placing your hands and the holes in his wrists and the hole in his side? Why not, thinking about that, why not think about that moment where you will fall down before him and crast, and crast, that is not a word. That is, I mean, maybe it is. Google it later. I'll check it out. I hope it's not a bad word, but it sounds like one. Oh, jeez. And cast your crown. I mean, what an amazing thing to consider. The Stephanos that he places upon you, the crown of life or the crown of righteousness, just in full acknowledgement that it's him and him alone that is worthy and no flesh will glory in his presence. Hey, if you're going through a difficult time, meditating on heaven is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. It is the place where every tear will be wiped away and you will dwell in the presence of God forever, for all of eternity, eternal joy and bliss. And that, that my friends, is an amazing thing. We're going to have communion tonight. And so uh, when you walked in, the uh, elements were given to you. If you did not get them, I want to encourage you. We, we have uh, ushers and deacons in the back, and you can just raise your hand because they'll, they'll, they'll bring you. They'll bring you some. And I just want to remind us tonight, you know, um, communion is a sacred time for sure. It's a sacred time in that this is an observance that's reserved for the people of God uh, because as believers in Christ, we follow the words of Christ when he instituted the Last Supper communion with his disciples. And it's an acknowledgement that we believe that Jesus came in bodily form, uh, that he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins, that the full weight of God's wrath for every sin that we've ever committed was levied. The full weight of God's wrath was levied upon the Son. He took it. He bore it. He drank the cup of the wrath of God. And the wrath and the punishment that we deserved was poured out on him. We take the bread acknowledging that he came physically, that he 
physically died on the cross for our sins and that he physically rose again from the dead. We drink the cup because we remember the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Life has to be substituted where death is deserved. And that's precisely what he did for us. He gave his life, the Bible says in Leviticus, the life is in the blood. He gave his life for us and he took the death that we deserved upon himself. Death, of course, could not hold him down because he was the perfect lamb of God and the father promised that the holy one would not see corruption. He was victoriously raised on the third day from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the father. We as believers partake in this uh, because we've trusted, we've put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. We know him to be the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. Tonight, if you haven't taken that step of faith, we want to encourage you to do that. And it's as simple as making that your prayer to God, acknowledging that there's sin in your life, turning away from that sin, believing that Jesus died on the cross in your place, and receiving him personally as your Lord and Savior, choosing to follow him as one of his disciples. And this is the gift of salvation that God gives as an act of grace for those who trust in Jesus Christ. So um, tonight we have communion with God as we partake of these elements. We also have communion with each other. There's a oneness that we share as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, not just in our church, but for all those who are called by his, his name. He knows those, he knows all those who have trusted in him. There is one Lord and there is one church. And that's true for the city of Las Vegas. There's one church, even though there may be nuances and names, there's only one church. And that's true in a global sense as well. And we have communion, we have oneness with those brothers and sisters that are suffering. This is why we, you know, at a, you know what I mean when I say this, we can feel their suffering, we can feel their pain because we're at one with them. And tonight as we take the elements, I want to encourage you um, just to prepare your hearts to really be praying for those in the world that are suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Let's, let's pray together. You can pull the layers of plastic off of the communion elements, the cup. Oh Lord, we're so grateful tonight to, to know you, just the simplicity of faith, just the simplicity of faith. And Lord, we, you know, we sometimes can, we can complicate things, Sometimes we can bring a, a worldliness into our relationship with you. We can have expectations that are just not founded in the scriptures. And we thank you for holy communion. We thank you for this reminder that you instituted the simplicity, the drawing our hearts and minds back to the one thing, the one thing, Lord. And I pray tonight, we ask together that uh, you in this place, we do believe that you are with us in a very special way. You always are, but especially during times of communion. Would you lift the confusion tonight? Would you lift the tangle that we make of our lives, would you help us to simplify the way we live by faith? And I pray that in the simplicity of the body that was sacrificed for us and the blood that was shed for us in that place of simplicity, God, that you would restore our joy, restore joy tonight. As we center our hearts and minds upon you, I pray that you would restore joy, that you would lead us to worship, 
knowing tonight that there are some of us who may be walking through a very dark valley, knowing tonight that there are are some of us who are experiencing a burden that crushes, knowing tonight that there are unanswered prayers, that hearts are, that hearts have been pleading for, yet we know tonight that in all of that, you deserve to be worshiped because of who you are and because of what you've already done. Thank you that the bread and the cup are a reminder of what matters. Tether us, we pray, to the cross. Tether our hearts, Lord. And we remember tonight as we as we consider communion with the saints across the globe, we remember those brothers and sisters tonight that are in chains, that are in bonds, that are suffering and marginalized and and some in pain and giving their lives. 13 just today on average. Please, please we pray that you would supply all that they need, Lord all that they need to stay steadfast in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the body that was incarnate and broken for us. Thank you for the blood that was shed. We just receive anew your work on the cross for us. Let's take the bread together. Let's take the cup together. Oh Lord, we do thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Tonight, we're going to have just a, a time of prayer. I'm going to have Pastor Brennan come up tonight. We're going we're gonna to pray for the persecuted church this evening. I want to encourage you. Uh, to just, you know, stay put, don't, don't leave. This is part of our worship service. And Pastor Brennan is our missions pastor. He also leads our church planting ministries. And uh, he's going to have the opportunity tonight to lead us in a, a guided time of prayer. God bless you guys. Awesome. Praise the Lord. So we're definitely going to take some time right now and pray for our brothers and sisters all around the world who are being persecuted for their faith. And just to, um, I was thinking of making it, you know, personalized, thinking about, you know, times I've heard that they've lost their utilities like water, electricity, uh, some who have lost children have been taken away for fear that their children would learn, you know, the Christian faith, um, or even brothers and sisters that are worshiping in silence, just mouthing the words to songs, um, for fear of being caught, but still having just such a great time of worship, or uh, it just baffles me how governments could think that um, by throwing pastors in jail or taking their lives that the church is going to die, but it continues to grow, right, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This time of prayer we have right now could literally spark that that courage that someone needs at this moment, or that, that strength that they need, that boldness. So if you would join me in prayer... And just huddle close to the person next to you. And and I'm going to just pray out loud and just pray what's on your heart. But we're going to start praying for them spiritually. Let's pray. Father God, first of all, we just want to come to you believing that, that, Lord, there's a few of us. But we know that by the power of prayer, you could affect the lives of millions. And, Lord, we just pray for those suffering because of their faith. First of all, that they would know, they'd have in mind that hope that's in you, Lord. That they would have that strength in your Holy Spirit. Pray that they would know how much you love them, how precious they are to you, Lord. And I pray that you would give them wisdom in how to share their faith, Lord. And that you would remove the fear, Lord, the fear that is so understandable to us. But you would give them just a boldness, Lord. 
and a strength to tell other people about you, no matter the cost, and that 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 would rub off on us, Lord, that we would be encouraged and inspired and enlightened by their boldness to do it in our own context. And Lord, we pray physically, Lord, for them that they would have access to the scriptures. They would have access to the word of God. Pray for those that have been rejected by family and friends, Lord, especially women and children who are vulnerable, Lord. And we pray that you would provide for them their daily needs, whether that's the utilities, Lord, or the food, the finances, whatever they might need. We know you are our provider, Lord, and there's a need that we don't quite understand in our context, but you know their needs, Lord, and you're able to provide it miraculously. And Lord, we know that many of them would just, they wouldn't necessarily pray for this, but we pray for protection for them, Lord, that you would protect them, that you would keep them safe, keep them strong and healthy, Lord. And lastly, Lord, I pray for us that you would help us to remember them. Lord, you would help us if we're struggling with apathy. Maybe we feel like we just don't care. We feel numb to it, Lord, that you would melt our hearts and put us in their shoes, Lord, make it real for us. Help us to know how to help them, Father God, whatever we can do, even if you're calling some of us to go. Lord, just prepare our feet, prepare our hearts to do what you have for us, Lord. And I pray, Father, again, that you would give us that encouragement, that boldness to be able to spread your word, Lord, to tell people about what you did for them on the cross. Lord, if if those believers can... Be bold, so can I, Lord. So can we. Give us that boldness, Lord, and help us to do it out of a heart of compassion. A real, true love for people. Not just to check out a box of being a good Christian, but really with our whole heart just to reach out to those in need. We love you, Lord, and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.